And I always figured that there were maybe seven people in, in LA that would kind of get me. And I'm just really lucky who those seven people turned out to be. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. No matter what you do or where you are in your life right now, I'm pretty sure you've heard the word no more than once. And some of those no's might make you feel like you don't want to get out of bed. This podcast is here to tell you, you're not alone. If all these people can walk through the valley of no's to get to their yes, why can't you? Welcome, welcome. This is episode 53, otherwise known as episode one of year two, which is kind of nutty to me. Um, My guest today is actor, Emmy Award winning actor Richard Schiff, who you may know as the White House communications director, Toby Ziegler, from the famed The West Wing series, which uh, that's where I met Richard, although we didn't actually work together back then. Um, We'll get into that in a second. If you don't know him from the West Wing, maybe you know him. There was a lot of Emmy buzz for him this year for The Good Doctor on ABC. Unfortunately, he did not get the nod, um, but he is just an incredible actor. And some people, I've been shocked. Some people I've, I've said, oh yeah, Richard Schiff is coming on the show. And they said, huh. And they and they didn't put the name together. And then I show them the picture and they go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's in everything. I watch movies with the kids. He's in Man of Steel right now. Uh, he was in um, The Lost World, Jurassic Park. I Am Sam with Sean Penn. Ray with Jamie Foxx. Seven with Brad Pitt. Hoffa with Nicholson. Malcolm X with Denzel. Uh, what else did he do? Um, the Hudsucker Proxy with Paul Newman. City Hall with Pacino. It's just amazing. He's worked on Broadway um, with, with Arthur Miller. He, he's just he, he's worked on the stage in London. He had his own theater company. He is really a craftsman. Uh, just yesterday, I got a text from one of the interns who's helping me with the show. And he said, oh, Richard Schiff, I've been watching House of Lies, which is that Don Cheadle show on Showtime. Um, He's on that. I forgot that. He's on Ballers with uh, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. And we actually talk about The Rock late in the interview. If you want to hear that, it's kind of cool to hear what Richard has to say about working with him. Um, Really digs him, which I was happy to hear. Uh, You know, for me, this is kind of personal because when I came out to L.A., I, I specifically remember being in... I can't think of the name of it. There's a coffee shop around the corner from Warner Brothers in Burbank. And I was really new to LA and I walked in and I saw Janelle Maloney, who was Donna on the West Wing. And this is a couple of years prior to me working on that show. And I remember kind of getting nervous, like, oh my God, there's someone from the West Wing. And at that point, I had already worked with Gandolfini and Edie Falco on The Sopranos. So it wasn't like I hadn't done things and been around people, but I think seeing someone just in a coffee shop was kind of weird for me from such an iconic show. And then was lucky enough a few years later to work on the show, but I kind of worked in the the campaign section of it with Jimmy Smits and Brad Whitford and Janine Garofalo and, and all of them. I wasn't really with Schiff or um, 
uh, Martin Sheen so much or, or even Allison Janney. I met all of them, but I didn't really work with them. But I always thought Schiff was amazing and intense. And I was kind of scared of him um, because he was so intense um, and, and just a really great actor and a, and a smart, smart guy. Uh, so a few years after that, I ended up doing this little web series um, before web series were cool. And he was a producer on it as well as acting in it. And he, I was just like, man, this guy is working on this little thing. We were making really no money and it was just for the love of the game. And I thought, God, this guy is a real actor's actor. And, and he really is. And, you know, I'm excited for you to hear the interview. It's it's funny because if you're an actor or you're in the entertainment business at all, I think you'll definitely want to hear it. And if you're not, um, it may be interesting to you. He's totally low key. I feel like there are times when I'm listening back and I was kind of taking notes on it where I, I have to lean in to hear him. He's he's almost uh, shy in a way. And then when he's performing, he's so electric. So that I find that interesting. And I also thought in keeping with the theme of 10,000 No's of encouraging you guys to keep going when things seem tough or when you don't feel like you see the path ahead of you just yet. Um, think about this as you're listening to Richard, who has won all kinds of awards. Um, he, he's been in all kinds of movies and TV shows. As he's telling these stories, he didn't even know that he wanted to be an actor. He didn't realize it till pretty late. It was very reluctant that he became an actor. He thought he was a writer, a director. And, and I just thought, man, if you go back and you were in his life back then, he didn't know all of this stuff was coming for him. Um, maybe he had a sense somewhere deep within, but it was just a reminder to all of you and to myself that, you know, the path is sometimes crooked, but if you, if you follow, you know, for him, it's like what you're good at because he was, he was really good. And I think people recognize that and pulled it out of him. And then if you follow, and then he found a love of the craft of acting. If you follow that, you, you don't know where you could end up. So don't try to, um, you know, don't claim to know the end before you get to the end. You really don't know. You don't know where things are going to go for you. So why not hope for the best, wish for the best, you know, work your ass off. But um, don't put these these negative thoughts into your head. Just just keep going. Um, I, I really... I really hope you enjoy this this conversation. I was uh, very flattered and grateful to have Richard let me into his home and uh, sit down and basically talk shop for like an hour and a half. Um, it uh, We cover a lot of ground, and I really hope you enjoy it. And without further ado, Richard Schiff. Is it fun for you? Have you done a bunch of those? I, I have a blast doing it, especially the live ones. Yeah. <clears throat> it was the first time I did one. Uh, I didn't quite know what to expect. And I certainly didn't expect Josh Molina to be serious at any point in time, which he was. And it ended up being a very emotional episode because it was, uh, 
I was talking about an episode that was very important to me uh, in Excelsis Deo, and I ended up getting very emotional. <laughs> At one point, Josh goes, cry, cry. <laughs> but um, then he got serious. And uh, uh, But when we do the live events, it's... Uh, it's a blast because, you know, Josh is very funny and yeah. I shockingly can be funny. And, uh, you know, the audience is drinking up every word. You know, they're like Trekkie fans, you know, they're, they're obsessed. And uh, it's a fun audience to talk to because they... They know what you're talking about. And well, they, they know more of what I'm talking about because I don't, you know, I have never watched the series all the way through at one point. <clears throat> a few years ago, I wa- decided I should watch this show because I hear it's good. <laughs> and um, This is after the run had ended. Oh, years after the run. Yeah. And um, I'd only seen one show uh, because Aaron insisted I see it. And that was in Excelsis Deo. He says, I know you don't watch, but you have to watch this with us. Um, a, couple of, a bunch of years later, I, I sat down and watched about two years worth and then stopped. So when I do these uh, these uh, podcasts for the West Wing Weekly, I will uh, review that show and find myself watching two or three more because... He gets sucked in. It's actually really good. It is really good. And um, uh, especially for 17 people, I think it was year two, and that whole sequence of shows about the, discovering that the president had MS... I think those five shows are, are as good as any five series, five episode arcs ever. I think they're yeah. really phenomenal. But um, uh, but when I when I talk about the West Wing, you know, my memory is uh, not great because I haven't watched them. The audience will often correct my memory. Yeah, you know, so my memory has become an ongoing joke on those podcasts That's because funny. I. I uh, I'm kind of enjoying the fact that uh, I have selective memory now. Yeah. And uh, I have a kind of subjective way of remembering things. And uh, nowadays when I act, I, I tend to forget it almost immediately, which I, I love. Yeah. I love just not remembering. So people, you know, with The Good Doctor, I'll get interviewed and they'll say, you know, what's your favorite episode? What's your favorite scene? And I go, I don't remember very much, you know. I just Yeah. And I, I kind of I'm luxuriating in that. That makes me feel better for myself because that happens to me. There are some things that I I did a long time ago and I still remember. There are specifics that I remember, but there are a lot of times the large sections that I've forgotten. Um and it even with this podcast, my wife, she's a big runner, so she'll listen. And uh and she'll come back to me and go, oh, that was great. You know, when they said such and such. And I'm like, huh. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And in the moment, I'm loving it. And then you kind of, you do it and, and it might you be put a it out there. byproduct of just being more present. I, yeah. You know, and, when, and also when you're starting out or your first experiences with something important, you tend to uh, probably be a little bit emotionally charged. And I think chemically... You tend to plant things in your memory a little more when uh, emotions are attached. You know, like what we remember those moments when we're most afraid, yeah. or when we're most in love, or when we're hysterically laughing. So I think you know, I'm not a physiologist or a scientist, but I'm guessing that uh, when you uh, 
when you're in an emotional state, your memory will tend to tend to be better for those moments, mostly because you're it's different than the than the normal kind of kind of wavy flatline that we live our lives. Right. And then when things get, um, you know, uh, intense in one way or the other, you, you're going to remember those, right? Because yeah. they're diff- they're higher spikes on the graph. You know? Well, let me ask you, I wasn't really planning on getting right into the West Wing as I kind of figured I'd, you know, we'd get to it when we get to it. And um, But you kind of started there. One thing was that, that I was thinking about was, did you guys realize when you were shooting that pilot, did you realize or, or have any idea of what that would become? I mean, that was like in the zeitgeist. That I knew that it would last two terms. I didn't know we were starting our first term in the second year, so which gave us seven years instead of eight. But um, I, and it was one reason why I was very um, <clears throat> concerned, I guess you could say, about taking the job because I, figured it would last. Yeah. <clears throat> and I have an issue about doing one role for a long time. I, it's not, you know, I always think of Eugene O'Neill's father who did Count of Monte Cristo for ever in yeah. his acting life because it made more money for him. And he went insane. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, it's not quite the same with television, but, um, cause you get different episodes, but, um, uh, I always enjoyed the variety and the time off. West Wing was 10 and a half months a year, um, 80 hour weeks sometimes, um, 18 hour days sometimes. So, uh, um, and every show that I had taken before that, I had known that it wasn't going to last. And so there was some comfort in that. Yeah. You know, so I. But it was it wasn't officially picked up to series when you did the pilot, or was it? No, but I knew. But you I kind, kind of knew. knew. Yeah. I don't know why I knew. I I used to have a really good record with uh, knowing, and I did a really bad pilot, which I won't mention. That uh, I was sure wasn't going to go, and I asked a bunch of actors, including George Clooney, "Do you have you ever taken a pilot?" that you knew wasn't going to go just for the paycheck. And then, and George Clooney goes, are you kidding? That was my career <laughs> until ER. He'd done like 11 pilots. Yeah. And every actor said, yeah, you take it, take it. And it won't go, take it. And it, the writer strike was on its way. And my agents were like, no, you should take this and blah, blah, blah. And I went, well, I had one scene in the pilot and I was fairly sure there was no chance that anyone with a brain would ever put this on television. <laughs> and uh, a year later, I remember checking, I remember it was, it was coming around May, around when the upfronts happened and when the networks picked their shows. And I said, I haven't heard anything. I guess we didn't get picked up, thank God. Let me just check. And I checked the internet for Fox's new shows and I didn't see it. So I sent an email to people I would like them fine. Uh, you know, the writers and the, everybody. And I said, sorry, you know, we didn't get picked up. You know, it was great working with you. And then I got 14 emails within a minute. What do you mean we're not picked up? We're on the bubble. How do you know? What information do you have? I think we're going to get picked up. And 
they obviously went into a panic and I went into a panic for the opposite reason. <laughs> right. And sure enough, it got picked up and we did six painful episodes. And um, I guess at that point, somebody before it aired, somebody at Fox tripped over a DVD, popped it in and went, we're spending money on this? <laughs> what are we, out of our minds? And they canceled. But they aired... Six the six shows and it was um, utterly embarrassing that they uh, that I was a part of something so painful. Yeah. Uh, so you know I I missed my prediction on that one. <clears throat> and the good doctor I I was uh, not I kind of expected it would run but I'm kind of shocked at how well it's doing. Yeah, it's a big uh, hit uh, for them, right? Um, Mazafit. Yeah, yeah, it's like number one new show or number one hour long show or something yeah. like that. It's, and you're doing that. You, you're also doing ballers still, right? But yeah. I was only season. able to do a couple of ballers this year, which was, uh, because sad. of schedule, because of scheduling. scheduling. And I think because I had taken another show that kind of moved on with the storyline a little bit. Yeah. So I pop in a couple of times this year and it's always fun to do that. And show. then what's, are you doing, did I read, are you also doing a, a series on, Stars as well, or mm -hmm. at the same time? Yeah, a, a show I love called Counterpart um, that has J.K. Simmons and Olivia Williams. Justin Marks wrote it, and I, I love him. I lo Amy Berg wrote a good portion of the first season. She's become a favorite of mine. And um, Justin's just really smart, as, was, as is Amy. And um, I love the show, and I love the character. Yeah. I mean, you're, I feel like you're all over the place and I'm sure you hear that all the time, but I'll, I mean, I'm even, you know, popping in movies with the kids and, you know, Superman and there you are. I'm like, God, Schiff is everywhere. Um, and you, so what do you, what is it that you, what are some of the criteria that, uh, go into the choices you make because you are given a lot of options, um, well, yeah, the, the, this last year, a uh, year ago, there were a lot of options. You know, there were four different shows that wanted me as a regular. And uh, that's never happened before. A um, couple I was already on and wanted to make me regulars. And, uh, and a sitcom, which would have been easy, easy walking, you know, in, in L.A. And, you know, three weeks out of them. I, I envy Alice and Janney's schedule. Yeah. You know, she, Hardworking gal, but she, you know, is off one week a month, and you know, I've been, I've done sitcoms. And you come in for an hour on Monday, you read it. Tuesday, you rehearse for a couple hours, and then Wednesday, you kind of get to work, and Thursday, you get serious, and Friday, you shoot. But yeah. it's really uh, Matthew Perry was on our show uh, while he was on Friends, and at one point, we asked him how how many hours do you actually work. And he goes, you mean when I'm actually acting? And I went, yeah. He goes, 11. <laughs> and when you calculate his salary, yeah, he was making a lot of money. In yeah, what were they making at the end? Like a million an episode a million or something? one, I think, yeah. yeah. So calculate, put that into 11 into that. And that's what he was making an hour. Um, uh, so yeah, there were a lot of options. And, um, and that's always painful for someone like me. Uh, because gun to my head, I panic. Really? You know, and everyone was like, we got to know by Thursday at one o'clock. And um, 
Uh, yeah. Yeah, I remember seeing you right before, I, I think you were probably offered The Good Doctor, and I saw you at uh, Eli's house, and and I had I had gone in for, obviously, a different role on that, and we were talking about it, and I remember, and I remember thinking, oh, man, that's that's got to be a burden when you're in that position where you have these these choices is which which one am I going to take? Uh, well, um, the, the one that I took, The Good Doctor, is the biggest commitment because it's 18 shows. It's in another city, or at least there was the possibility that it would be with promises that it would come to L.A. as soon as it could. That promise has been um, very uh, expertly... Um, slithered around really even with it being a huge hit yeah because usually it seems like when it's a huge hit then you kind of have leverage Uh, yeah that's what everyone expected and uh so i'm a little concerned about my reaction to that in the long term um uh it's gotten me kind of crazy um so because of those commitments 18 shows you know the other shows were 10 and 10, and if it was a sitcom, it was three weeks out of the month. And, you know, Allison gets to go off and do all these other movies. And so that would be possible. Uh, and it's home. It would be in L.A. So uh, this was a massive uh, commitment, and I always panic. Um, yeah. I, 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 there's a part of me that feels like I'm, I'm putting myself in a very comfortable prison when I commit to a show that I know is going to last yeah. You know, like a nice white collar prison where a guy cooks for you. Yeah. You know, like uh, like I was a made guy and, you know. Yeah. I, I'm not threatened. It's a comfortable life, but it's still, you know, it has walls and guards. Yeah. And um, uh, so that was, uh, that was a major issue for me. And uh, I still have mixed reactions about it, to be honest. Um, yeah. You know. Uh, well, I'm interested to hear you saying, this you had all these offers and that's the first time well I can't imagine for you because I met you when you were you know you had already very much established that you had already won an Emmy for the West Wing you'd been nominated I think what three times um so I can't imagine the Richard Schiff that was ever like delivering pizza and I don't know if that ever existed did you ever have you you how early did you start were you working in theater when you were a kid? I was a movie star when I was three. <laughs> uh, no, I was. I drove a cab for years. You did proofread in law firms. I worked in a factory. And when I, I kind of dropped it all out and went out to Colorado, I cleaned Greyhound buses on Eleventh Avenue from eleven at night till seven in the morning. In summers, while I went to school, um, uh, no, I didn't. Um, Make start making a living for real until my son was born, which was how old were you? I was forty. Really? Oh yeah, I know. I, lo- I love hearing that. So when I was, I'm, and I didn't act when I was in my twenties. I had a theater company in New York that yeah. was. Your church. artistic director as well. Yeah, well, you know, who was else yours. was going to do it? You know, yeah. I was basically me and a few people got together because we wanted to make work for ourselves. <clears throat> And um, it actually was a pretty successful theater company after a bit and uh, had the opportunity to kind of grade up in, in money and, and exposure. And I realized I was going to become an administrator instead of just 
somebody directing plays and I wasn't Joe Papp. I didn't want to do that. I didn't understand the business. I was just, you know, raise money by, you know, putting a hat in my hand basically. And, and, uh, and now we were getting, you know, uh, we had angels and people who wanted to, but they, there were conditions, you know, I mean, one guy wanted to give us 80% of the budget for our next play, which is a fairly big play in exchange for his lover being in the play. And, uh, we had a we had a general manager. Uh, I think it was Gatchel and Newfeld or somebody like that. Broadway people, and there was a guy who worked for them who was a, who, and we were his pro bono um, pet project. So he was general managing for us, and he said, hey, "You got to take it. You got to take it." All right. Well, let me audition the guy. You know, and he, he's actually pretty good. He was actually fine. Um, and and there wasn't a stipulation that he'd be a lead role. It was an ensemble piece, and I can give him any role I wanted. So it wasn't uh, a gun to the head type of, you know, um, benef- benefactor. Um, uh, and then somebody at Circle Rep, you know, the company with Lamford Wilson and Marshall Mason, and the probably the most important so-called regional theater company in New York, Off Broadway Company, and. And they said, do you have any idea how we got started? It was all a vanity project. Some guys had a girlfriend and wanted to put her in plays. And so that's how Circle Rep, one of the great companies in New York history, uh, got started. Uh, But I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. I just did. It just felt weird um, to be holding to some guy, you know, uh, who wanted wanted his lover to, you know, love him more. Um, and I just, I didn't give it up. And I said, you know, anyone who wants to take this over, you're welcome to it. How old were you at this time when you guys founded it? I was it, like right? 28, 29, something like that. And before, and before, go on with the story. And then I'll well, so then I, I uh, continued to direct small, smallish, you know, off, off Broadway stuff was not in the mainstream, you know, uh, Playwrights Horizons and EST and all these companies that young directors would start in. They didn't want any part of me. I didn't go to Yale. You know, there was a Yale mafia and all due respect, there was a gay mafia. And um, and they kind of ran New York theater. And I also noticed that a lot of people who came from out of town had kind of a community from their home, from their home area that was already established in New York and helped them through. And I was this reclusive uh, um you know, uh, um, hermit um, who had no connections in New York. And I was from New York. You were from New York. Were you from the Bronx? Uh, We lived in the Bronx, but mostly the west side of Manhattan. A little Brooklyn, a little Queens. And um, I went to CCNY, backdoored my way into a theater, a professional training acting program, which how old were you when there. you came out with your BFA from? Well, I, it just happened to be there, and it was run by a guy named Earl Gister, who'd come from Carnegie oh, yeah. Mellon. Yeah, and later I started ran. with Ron Van Lu in New York, who ended up taking over Earl's at place Yale. at Yale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Earl ended up running Yale School of Drama for 12, 14 years, something like that. And it was brilliant, and we had all these New York theater people there. So that's how I tripped into uh, a really great theater program. Um, but I was uh, I was late because I dropped out of college for a bit, came back, 
worked my way through. So probably 23 or four when I got out. Yeah. And um, Can I pause you for a second to drop out of college? Because that's, I'm so interested, especially for the listeners here of like, you know, you hear that you're extremely intelligent guy. What was going on there that happened with it? Were you, well, in England, they would call it a gap year. You know, it wasn't really. So you just took a, took a little time to figure well, out what I, you wanted. At yeah. the time I was, you know, leaving. So I, I didn't know what I was doing. So um, yeah. uh, a lot of it had to do with um, being um, intensely unhappy. Yeah. And working hard in New York and going to school and not really being able to never been able to sit down in a classroom. Yeah. It's always been tough. I always got into the smart schools when I was in high school, Horace Mann, which is a very exclusive private school, and then Bronx High School of Science. But I couldn't sit. So I ended up getting a GED at night. Best time I ever spent in school. Night school at Washington Irving, downtown in Manhattan. It was an all-girls school by day. And at night, all the teachers wanted to be there. And you had all these Dominican families who were trying to get their uh, diploma so they can get a better job. And I used to cheat for them and, you know, I'd write all the answers and pass it. You know, I had a purpose there. Yeah. I was helping people get their diploma so they can get a job. And uh, there was this triumvirate that we formed, a, a Cuban refugee recovering heroin addict and a businessman from Pakistan who wore three-piece suits and was accepted into Columbia Business School, but he didn't have a high school diploma. He didn't need a college diploma. My mother did that she, without a college diploma because they took her right out of, right out of um, her, biz, her business life. And really? Time, Time Inc., Time Life, put her through business school at Columbia. So this guy uh, wow. did the same thing. And the three of us became best friends. It's the oddest trio you'll ever meet. <laughs> I had a great time at that school and I, and I was able to focus cause it was short, you know? Yeah. And, um, and I got my diploma and city college had open admissions. So I went there, uh, and I was just lost and unhappy. And, and, I, my only friend lived in Colorado. So I moved out there with him, lived in a hippie household where they grew vegetables in the backyard and, eventually banned me from cooking meat in the house because they called me the splatter kid because I would get frozen french fries and hamburger meat and splatter grease all over the kitchen. Um, and I had to cook once a week. I had a, you know, and the only thing, they taught me how to cook eggplant parmesan. So we got eggplants from the backyard and you'd have to salt them and paper towel them to get all the water out and make a casserole with cheese and sauce and all this stuff. And I did it every week. And every week it turned into eggplant Parmesan soup. <laughs> How and long then, were you there for? In I was there for a year. A year. But uh, fell in love while I was there, um, which was the first time that happened, kind of. And that was a bit of a lifesaver. Um, uh, and then found my way back to New York. Wasn't going to get back into to, uh, City College because I I wouldn't finish classes if they bored me. I would just, and I would never kind of go through the motion of removing myself from the roster. I just wouldn't go. Yeah. And um, so I had all these incompletes. And when I went and saw the dean about coming back to school, he said, we can't let you in. You haven't, 
you know, your, your record is just too poor. And then on the way out of the office, I saw a, a card, which was a readmission card in a slot in, in a wood, you know, one of those wooden in and out uh, boxes. Yeah. And it said a readmission card. So I kind of just quietly picked one up. And all you had, all it was, was you fill out this card, and then the dean signs it at the bottom. And uh, they don't know this because they've since given me an honorary doctorate. I saw that, and you. <laughs> but I, uh, I uh, very nicely wrote as you know, signed the dean's name yeah. to the card. I don't know if they're going to come and arrest me. What's the statute of limitations? Yeah, on I don't this? know. But was it you and Bill Clinton got the doctorate of, of humane letters or something I read? I yeah, years right. years yeah. later. So, yeah. But that's how I got back in. I think they're going to let it slide at this point. Yeah, that's how I got back in really? to, the, uh, to school and, and then found my way into the Davis Center for Performing Arts program. Uh, but yeah, years later, I, well, I, Toby Ziegler on The West Wing was the only character I've ever played that I decided went to City College of New York. I played characters that I decided went to Brooklyn College. Yeah. Uh, City Hall comes to mind. But um, never before have I picked it. So when we were playing uh, basketball in front of the White House on a scene, the prop guy comes up to me and says, you, do you want a City College sweatshirt to play? And I went, how did you know? He goes, oh, everybody uses their alma mater. I go, but I've never used my alma mater for a character before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, give me a CCNY. So sure enough, I wore it, and then they contacted me and said, you know, we'd like to give you, uh, we'd like you to come back and speak. And I went, oh, okay. And then I find out that uh, tuition, uh, uh, admissions went up since I wore that shirt, and apparently they went through some troubles with Giuliani as mayor. Giuliani was going after that school for some reason. I don't know the full story. And did this help it? Yeah, and this That's... and this apparently helped uh, um, uh, admissions go up, and then they gave me a postgraduate medal, and I looked up the previous winners, and it's Jonas Salk, oh, and um, you know people who built New York City, and um, uh, Ed Koch, I think, and um, and in in the in the arts field, uh, Edward G. Robinson, Jimmy Cagney. Really? Zero Mostel and Patty Chayefsky. Wow. So it was, I was very impressed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I gave a speech, and I always give a speech about trying to save open admissions because that's how I ended up saving my kind of career and life. Um, and they were, they've since killed it. And so now it's they, they want to get back to being the Harvard of the proletariat, the school that everybody can't get into, you know, and, yeah. and they're succeeding in doing that, sadly. Yeah. But, um, uh, and then I made a joke giving a speech that all my castmates in the West Wing are getting honorary doctorates. And somebody took me seriously and decided to get, to make that happen. And they called me and said, you're getting your honorary doctorate, but I'm so sorry, you're not going to be the keynote speaker this time. And I said, well, okay, but who is? And they said, President Clinton. <laughs> yeah, you're like, all right, well, I'll, I'll, that's okay. Yeah, well, that's life. Yeah. I got um, to spend the day with him, which was quite uh, interesting. Yeah, it's a, amazing where the, the career has taken you. And um, I mean, wh- what were those 
times like, were there any, ever any times between the Earl Gister years and the, um, the Manhattan Repertory Theater and, and being 40 and finally making a living? Like, were there any times when you thought, man, this is, this is uh, really rough. It's either it's too rough or um, I, I'm imagining you always thought you were pretty good. You, you know, there's, there's no. got to be, or maybe not. Uh, that wasn't uh, an issue. It, it, um, it took uh, discovery and and realizing that peop- the way people reacted to my work. Uh, as a director, I was f- floundering because I was learning about what it was all about as I went. So I wouldn't say that uh, my productions were great yeah. by any means. Uh, we had life and we had... We had some great moments, you know, and some of the productions were really good, but um, others were not. And um, as far as acting goes, I, I just, uh, I, you know, I, it's, it's, it's a long way into this, but when I first, uh, uh, in, you know, at the Davis Center with Earl Gister, I didn't quite get it, you know, but, but it, was, uh, it was mostly, I was fascinated by it. And I would say I never wanted to be an actor. What I what I was interested in was I was always curious as to how I was able to, or I was taken into a trance by seeing powerful work. And being in the trance was a state that I loved to be in. And um, I and I became curious, like a scientist, how it was possible that one movie with these particular actors, say it's Dustin Hoffman or Robert Redford or Robert De Niro or Marlon Brando or the older movies with Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn, you know, or the old Frank Capra movies, why one movie with the same ingredients would put me in that trance that I was just riveted and forgot that I was who I was for two hours, which is a state I love to be in. Um, And other projects with the same ingredients, the same people, didn't put me in that trance. That's what I was fascinated with. And so that's what I was following my nose, so to speak, and wondering how that was possible, never thinking for a second that I'd have a career. And, huh. and I, I, um, I, uh, I didn't know what my future was going to be. It was really hard for me to even think about future. I was obsessed with the past and why I was so unhappy. Huh. Um, I wasn't thinking about the future, and and it, it was trust, tough for me to even think about the present. Was and that I, like, like childhood stuff? That, oh yeah, that, yeah. And um, and so as an adult, I was you know making m- enough money to eat. Lucky enough that I did not come from poverty, so I always knew I could get a meal, and that somebody would cover me for a month or two if I needed it, or I could even give up my place and sleep on a couch. Yeah. And I knew people from City College that did not have that luxury, that were literally hit, living hand to mouth and had to struggle and work two, three jobs and go to school. So um, certainly wasn't as tough for me as it was for some of, the, some of my peers at the time. But, uh, um, but yeah, I didn't think about the future and I was just, and I tripped into this professional training program and um, as a matter of fact, uh, I had one friend in college who was kind of a self-pronounced 
theater fag, um, as he called himself, uh, which meant he loved theater. Yeah. It had nothing to do with sexuality. Um, uh, so I hope no one's offended by that term, but that's what he called himself. Yep. He was a, a starter, starting basketball player for Forest Hills High School, uh, but he loved theater. I, my girlfriend, uh, his girlfriend and I got him standing room tickets for Chorus Line for his birthday. And then he proceeded to play the album incessantly. He was my roommate for <laughs> for weeks, if not months. Um, and and uh, just going back to the City College thing, just to explain, um, you know, how uncareer focused I was, uh, I uh, decided to take an acting class in the theater department, which is not the Davis Center. And... Uh, found myself engaged with people because we would re- rehearse scenes. And that's where I met this my friend Stephen. And, um, and there were girls around all of a sudden and they were coming to my apartment and we were rehearsing and this was a positive development. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and great plays, you know. Uh, I remember Stephen playing Biff in Death of a Salesman and we would do all these scenes. And uh, then I decided, all right, I'll try this acting class and took a class from a professional actress named Carol Thompson who would claim to fame me. She had done a play directed by Ulu Grosbard on Broadway and I knew Ulu Grosbard was a great director because I had seen American Buffalo that he directed with Robert Duvall and Kenneth McMillan and John Savage. And I was like, oh, wow, this one. But she was a horrible teacher. And um, <laughs> But we did the, this silly acting stuff and we got directed by the directing class and I was in a scene, and then the teacher of the directing class came up to me, and he said, uh, you should join this professional program we have here, and he told me a little bit about it. And uh, I remember telling my roommate, Stephen, and he go, I go, I don't know what to do. He goes, we got to find a monologue. And I went, I don't know where to look for that. And he found one uh, in a play called Little Murders by Jules Pfeiffer, which, and ironically, years later, I'm, I find myself working with his daughter, Hallie Pfeiffer, on a play we, we want to get, we want to do together. Um, we did a reading together, and I told her that story. Uh, so I did this reading of from, from um, Little Murders, which is funny. And I, would just, I was just reading it, and every now and then, these, and these two men were there, and they would laugh. Yeah. And I would stop and look at them like, you know, I'm trying to read here. What are you doing? <laughs> and I, I didn't know what I was doing. And when it was over, um, the other gentleman, who turns out to be Augusta, says, why are you so nervous? I said, because I've never done this before. And he, go, and he said, um, well, why do you want to be an actor? And I said, I don't want to be an actor. And he said, well... This is a professional acting training program. Um, uh, What are you you doing here? And I said, I don't know. He goes, you realize it's a three-year program? And I go, yeah. He goes, well, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I I write. Maybe it'll help me with my writing, whatever. And anyway, he let me in for reasons unknown. And he became my mentor and is a brilliant man. What a great mentor. Uh, Yeah, well... Just phenomenal uh, man and teacher. And uh, he, um, years later, we would sit in his office and I would bring up a big tub of coffee from, really bad coffee from the cafeteria. 
And we'd sit there and smoke his lucky strikes and talk for hours. It would seem like hours in memory anyway. And uh, at one point I said, why didn't you let me into this place? There's all these kids with tights, you know, from performing arts high school, you know, and, and all these people that, you know, they, 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 they came ready. And I'm like this schlub who like doesn't even want to work. I didn't even want to go up in his class. I just wanted to watch. <clears throat> and um, he said of all the, and he's, he was the profession, he was the president of the professional uh, league of training, the, the league of professional training programs across the country. You know, he come from Carnegie Mellon and he holds these auditions regionally all across the country for all the conservatories. So it's not like he's had, you know, 20 auditions. Yeah, he's seen everybody. You know, hundreds and hundreds yeah, yeah. every year. He goes, of all the years I've been doing this in the interview, I've never run across anyone so honest. And so I thought I'd take a chance. And... Um, <clears throat> uh, and wow. so uh point being is that I didn't have a career goal. I was really just following curiosity and yeah. didn't even want to work. I wanted to watch. And every now and then I'd make myself work and and um uh he didn't make you work in his class and and ended up uh being obsessed with it and I I would I would always I would do the lighting for all the guest companies that came in and uh, you know, Ballet Hispanico and all these beautiful dancers. And I'd be, you know, up in the towers doing the lights and, you know, and I would work on all the other productions. And, uh, you know, I was there till three in the morning rehearsing, you know, as years went on. And it, I'm in the middle of Harlem. So going home at three in the morning on 145th and Lenox wasn't uh, the safest thing in the yeah. world. Um, and uh, 147th was the... Da- most dangerous corner in the world, apparently. Really? The average, was that uh, considered Washington Heights on the west side? No, no, no. Before, no. in the middle of Harlem. Oh, okay, a little lower. It was a drug corner back in those days. Now yeah. it's much better nowadays. Um, but anyway, um, uh, we tend to go home in teams, um, but uh, I was a bit of a target, I'd have to say. And um, uh, anyway, uh, so... Uh, I just became obsessed with with it, and I ended up directing a play, uh, Waiting for Lefty of all plays, huh. and um, uh, which was which was a, a play that incited unions to go on strike back yeah. in 1937, and we're a un- you know we're all working class people in that school, and the janitors and the uh, and the security guys came to opening night, really, you know, and yeah, because the school had been closed from a snowstorm. And I got all the actors back up because it's opening night. You're not supposed to not do opening night. And and all the security guys said, hey, the school's closed. I'm like, no, we're doing a play. Come and see it. So all these blue collars came. And, and, uh, and they it was, loved it. It was like very moving for me. Very, and that's when I first realized that uh, I, maybe I have something to offer because that was, you could consider that a, a, a massive success from, from my life, you know? Yeah. And and directing twenty two different uh, actors, students, and um, uh, and were you still in Earl's class at this point? Was this no, but Earl ran the program. program. I was okay. in the second or third. I was in the third year. At the that third point. year, and I acted in a couple of plays, but it, it, it you know I don't I don't think I did well. 
I had too many questions, too many problems, and my body was in, in a state of fear. And then uh, when I got out, you know, my girlfriend at the time was an actress, and she was going to an audition in Brooklyn for this incredible play called Blues for Mr. Charlie by James Baldwin. So I went thinking with her. She goes, come with me. And I thought, ah, maybe I'll get a small role or something. This is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to go to auditions. And right. all the other actors I knew were going on these cattle calls, you know, and backstage would advertise. And, you know, hundreds of kids would be online and you'd have to have a picture and a resume. And I, and I would take some photograph I had of myself and slap it on a thing. Uh, and I went with her to Brooklyn thinking I'd get this little role and I auditioned. And the next thing you know, they wanted me to audition for the lead for the murderer, uh, whose name was Lyle Britton Jr. And um, I did, and I ended up getting that part. So I got the lead. Um, play was quite an interesting experience, uh, but I had to get to the theater. It was in Fort Mason, uh, Fort Greene, Brooklyn at the Masonic Temple. And I had to get to the theater at 12 o'clock noon to begin my relaxation exercises so that I could go on at eight. Oh my God. Uh, that's how, how much terror was in my body. Really? Um, yeah. And it was, it, every time I act, there is uh, a mountain to climb. This one was Everest <sighs> and it stayed Everest for many, many times after that. Uh, now it's more like, you know, uh, Kilimanjaro or maybe Mount Olympus here in the States, Olympia, whatever it is. <laughs> um, and um, after we were, uh, you know, and, and, and other uh, people, I got asked to join other companies and I got, you know, it, it, people considered me to be really kind of great in that, I guess. And uh, looking back, you know, I, I, I went for it for sure. And, um, uh, but it was hard, too hard. You know, I didn't, seven hours of warming up just to get through it, you know, and, um, gave it up and said, "Ah, this is crazy. Gave it up. Gave up. I'm going to kill myself if I do this. Really? So, and I had directed a couple of things in college and decided to do that. And I assistant directed and stage managed uh, a show that ended up going from off-off-Broadway, the New York Theater Ensemble, to off-Broadway, quite a fascinating experience, which we'll get into sometime. And um, uh, and then started my own theater company with actors that I met and uh, found myself liking a certain, uh, 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 not type of actor, but actors that had come from one particular teacher who I had found to be not only uh, really good actors, but very directable. Mm. And I couldn't really understand why that was the case. So it became like a a posse of actors that I would use from this particular teacher, from his school. And I called him at some point and I I said, and he knew me because he would come to the plays because his students, his ex-students, graduates were, were in him. And uh, I said, uh, can I talk to you about what you do and what you teach? And he went, sure. So I sat down with him for about an hour and, and, and went through his whole technique and so on and learned about what he does particularly. And he goes, you're an interesting fellow. You should take my class. And I go, I don't want to be an actor. 
And he goes, uh, you should take my class anyway. And try it for the summer program, and if you like it, you'll do the two years. And I went, all right. And I, in his class, you have to work. He'll, he'll call it, Richard, get up there. And, um, and so I lived in terror all week long. Yeah. You know, and they were improv, so you couldn't, you know, kind of work out what you were going to do. You had to go up there and... And be exposed. Yeah. And it was, and the, and the teacher turned out to be William Esper, who is now considered to be oh, yeah. the great American master teacher. Yeah. Obviously from the neighborhood playhouse. I thought you were going to say Meisner. That's what I was yeah. thinking. Well, it was between Meisner and Esper, but I, I was working with the Esper uh, graduates more than the Meisner people. And, uh, and so, you know, he invited me. So I went with him and, um, uh, Spent two years, and every now and then he would say, Richard, you know, you could do this. Yeah, but I don't want to do this. And I was doing the exercises and the improvs as if I was a director kind of looking outside in and never fully committed. And by the end of the second year, oh, and in the meantime, uh, um, actors, scene partners would take me to agencies to audition because they wanted to get agents. And then the agents would routinely take me aside and say, we want to sign you. And I say, I don't want to be an agent. I don't want to be a, definitely don't want to be an agent. I don't want to be a, an actor. Well, if you ever change your mind. And um, of course, when I decided to become an actor years later, I couldn't find an agent. Right. But um, uh, and uh, anyway, so there were clues that maybe I could do this. And the end of the second year, we were doing style and he said, he gave me a Bernard Shaw one-act play and said, uh, you'll never get this, Richard, but you should be good for you. And that pissed me off. And I was working with uh, a beautiful woman named Robin Lord, who was my uh, consistent partner on and off during the two years who I was in love with. And she had done a lot of Shaw. And I said, okay, teach me everything. And uh, it was the first time I fully committed do you think he did that to Do you think no. he knew that that challenge no. would? No, I do not think he's that smart, smart man, but not that smart. And so when the when that class graduated, uh, they came to me because I ran a theater and said, "Can we produce a play for us all to be in?" And I, well, I have eight hundred plays in my apartment unsolicited, so yeah, and um, we can all read them. And we found a play that they thought that I should be the lead in, which was this huge farce. Um, and first we had a director who I didn't like and who didn't like me, and I was going to drop out, and everybody went, no, 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 we'll just get another director. And we got this guy, um, whose name has popped out of my head, who was very good at comedy, and so he coached me along, uh, and it was a big hit. But I had... Uh, Terror, um, and I remember Robin Lord said to me right before the first performance, "Just do your actions. Just do your actions." So there, there, uh, there, there were tools that um, there were tools that we have, and you know, Stanislavski will 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 say out loud, you know, uh, um, not that he can now, but that. Uh, you know, technique is is when is for when inspiration fails. Yeah. You know, or when you get really nervous, and um, and you fall back on the on the uh, 
uh, outline you've given for yourself. Uh, and, uh, and that's what I did. And that, that show was a hit and then we moved it off Broadway and people would see me and, and then I got a movie and blah, blah, blah. And, and so it, it's kind of, I always had evidence, um, regardless of my actual self-confidence. I always had evidence yeah. that I, as Bill Esper said, I could do this, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and one led to another, but I, I, I still didn't think that, you know, a career was in the works. I thought, oh, I, I'll get to do plays and I'll get to do these movies that don't pay anything and, you know, and I'll drive a cab. And, um, and then at some point, a friend of mine I'd done a movie with was on my softball team, um, uh, who I got, we got on each other's softball teams in New York, uh, said, you want, you want to move to LA? And I, you know, I had a bad memory on every street corner in New York. Our movie was going to screen in LA. So I went, yeah. And here's a whole novel of, you know, gambling and going across country and losing all my money in LA on Kirk Gibson's home run. And so I was in LA with, with no money and, um, uh, scratched around and you know I met that's when I met Sheila or re-met Sheila Kelly who's my wife now and who had auditioned for me in one of my plays in New York uh-huh. and uh, uh, my photographer friend had her picture slapped up all uh, on every wall in his studio and I said oh, who is that and he goes you gotta meet her she's a young dancer who got hurt and is now acting at NYU and I auditioned her, and she was mysterious and phenomenal and beautiful. And but I ended up casting Angela Bassett in her first play out of Yale because I called Earl, Earl Gister, and um, and he yeah, and he recommended her. And uh, uh, and anyway, I, I found Sheila in L.A. years later, and we started to hang out together, so to speak. And she was doing very well. She was the it girl. She was. You know, in movies and TV, and she was doing lead role. And you roles. couldn't get arrested at this point. Were you Were you yeah, having a hard time get, with it? I could get arrested if I was. <laughs> but you couldn't get it. Land a lot of jobs at this point. Yeah, I was not really in the business. I was doing, but I was doing plays in LA. I was working with the Actors Gang with Tim Robbins Group. Okay. New York people that I knew would ask me to do plays when they came out, and every time I did a play, I would get a role in some. TV thing or something, so there, uh, you know, there was positive stuff, but I wasn't making a living uh, per se, and I was going in debt. And um, but Sheila knew what she was doing, and uh, she would coach me. And uh, matter of fact, I just ran into Matt Asner, who's Ed Asner's son, who's the good doctor, was at the autism festival, the Art Fest, and that's run by Ed and Matt Asner. Matt took me aside and said, you know, I was a casting director back in the day and you came in once. And I said, was I a little overcooked? And he went, we had never seen anything like it. You were like a caged animal. And that's how I auditioned. I was so so full of rage because I had to audition and be, you know, I built up so much work. I'd overcooked it, and 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 by the, and when I got in the room, I would just explode, and I scared the shit out of most everyone I auditioned for, to the point where there are still people that will not call me, uh, that will not, 
You know, so uh, I, there were some very big casting directors who are, who I've been off their list forever. Yeah. Regardless of what work I've done since, because their impression of me when they first met me. Well, um, you do. You have an intensity that is, uh, you know, in all of my dealings with you, you've always been so generous to me, but you have an intensity that um, is intimidating, I think. And it's also one of your, I think, trademarks for characters that you play. And just, it's just, it's, I'm not shocked to hear that, you know? Well, I, I, uh, I, I, um, yeah, you don't know it from inside out, obviously. You don't feel, you know, I'm just flashing on a memory when I've split up with my first wife, who I still absolutely adore and, and see. But I was going through a very, very rough time and full of a lot of emotion. And I would pace and pace and pace and um, in my apartment. And one time I, I just turned around and my dog was shivering. My dog was was in fear. Yeah. And I was like, holy shit. Because people would tell him, and some, somebody else, I was in, in that, in Esper's class at the time, and one of the other students there said, they saw me in the subway, but I was pacing around, and, and, and he, he got scared to, to, to interrupt me. Yeah. You know, and so I didn't, I don't, you don't think of that from the inside out at all, but I had a lot of that stuff going on and I had to learn how to. How to channel it kind of. Yeah, how to channel it and to just put in in the work, I suppose. But one, uh, this might be helpful. I don't know how many actors listen to this stuff, but um, uh, one of the things that turned it around for me in, in LA uh, with, of course, the help of Sheila um, was that I realized that um of all the painful uh, and enraging uh, audition experiences, like going into a room with 17 suits uh, who sell soap for a living and trying to impress them, or the sitcoms when they'd have 30 people in the room and they'd all laugh because they're laughing because the showrunner writer you know, wrote the joke that needs the laugh yeah. and they weren't laughing at me and it was very odd, Yeah, you know, uh, and... Um, uh, but one, one of the things I learned at some point, and it was well into my experience out here, was I'm not auditioning for them. They're auditioning for me. In other words, this is how I'm going to interpret this role. And based on how you respond, uh, we can talk about whether we want to work together or not. But I'm not... I, I'm not trying to do something that will Impress please you, you yeah. or that you want me to do. This is what I'm going to do. And if you don't like it, great that we found Yeah, you'd out. rather find that out now than go find work with Find it out them. now rather than having an issue on set, you know. And, um, and once I did that, I started to fly. Um, and I started to take control of the room and... and um, I defend some people, but most people appreciated it. Yeah. And I always figured that there were maybe seven people in, in L.A. that would kind of get me. And I'm just really lucky who those seven people turned out to be. Yeah. You know, um, and uh, uh, but that's a lesson. And, and you don't have to be as kind of intensely arrogant 
about your work as I as I was. I wasn't arrogant, but I was very arrogant about my work and what, what my interpretation was going to be. But here's an example of how that worked. I mean, uh, I remember auditioning for this show. It was, it was just one scene but of this movie. Uh, but I loved the writing. And um, I had a very particular take on this character. It was a gun salesman. Um, and, uh, uh, and it was a harrowing kind of script. It was very much about uh, what happens when all hell breaks loose and everybody wants a gun. And I decided that uh, I'm gonna, you know, I don't remember what, I, what the words were that I used, but I took a very particular take to this character. And the director, uh, writer, said, uh, wow, that's, I never imagined it like that. That, that, that could be really, in, that, that's interesting. Can you just try it funny? Because that's how I intended it when I wrote it. And I went, well, sure, that's not going to work, but yeah. And I tried to do it with the kind of lighter humor, which was in the material. And halfway through, I, went, I stopped and I went, no, no, that's not the way this should be. I go, and then I said, do you have any idea how good a writer you are? And I remember people in the room smirking. And um, I said, no, this, this is what you wrote. This is blah, 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 blah. And he ended up casting me in the role. And I found out that the writer-director was David Kep, who, you know, has written everything. Right. Uh, years later, I worked with him again on The Lost World. Um, and, and was, how how old were both of you at that time? Oh, God, he, I, I remember how old I was, but I was uh, it was in the nineties. Yeah, um, he that's was, great he that a, he. But that's a sign of that he was confident enough in himself to go. Okay, this guy is. This well, guy is every right. great writer that I've ever run into, whether it's Aaron Sorkin or Jason Kadams or David Kep or. Uh, you know, they recognize if they're, they have a brain, so they recognize, they want you to do it better than they imagined. Yeah. They don't want you to do it. Those are hacks. You know, David Mamet, I reinterpreted uh, a role that he came and saw and he went off on how much he loved it. So different from the way anyone else had done it. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, Arthur Miller, uh, you know, I don't know if you saw the production of Death of a Salesman with Elizabeth Franz and Brian Dennehy, but Elizabeth Franz changed the definition of the play. And Arthur Miller talked about that and said, I've, I never imagined the play to be this, like a love, it's a love story with her doing it. She totally reimagined uh, Linda, Willie Loman's wife. She was phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, I remember I did a movie with her later and talked with her. I asked her a thousand questions. Yeah. She she came on the stage. She was shaking. She shaked the whole play, shook the whole play. Um, Because, and and it was as if she was shaking from the effort of holding up that house. It was so beautiful and so phenomenal. And she played it not like a nagging wife, which had been done before, or, or a concerned wife. She played it like she was just wanted to keep him alive and just wanted to give him as much love yeah. as he could take. 
and as much as she could give, whatever she had left to give, but on the very verge of not having anything left. It was so, so poignant and so beautiful. And Arthur Miller, who had been seeing 50 years worth of his production of the greatest American play. Saw something that he Saw something completely new because an actor brought it to him. And and, uh, great writers want you to make it better than it already is. Yeah. You know? Well, that's something that comes to mind with you because I know you did, you did Glengarry, right, on yeah. Broadway and Sorkin, obviously Mamet and Sorkin, two writers kind of known for their, I think a lot of actors think they jump on that train and they go with it and you seem to kind of um, reinvent it like you're talking about in a way with still honoring it but making it your yeah, own. Yeah, without that intent necessarily, it's just like I say, it's how you interpret the role. Yeah. And um, I mean, I love great writing, you know. I mean, when I was doing Glengarry at the honor, really, I was also rehearsing to do Huey by Eugene O'Neill that Doug Hughes was directing. And I was, I was um, rehearsing O'Neill during the day and doing Mammoth at night. And I realized I was doing, rehearsing the grandfather of American modern theater and um, then doing at night the son, uh, the grandson yeah. of American theater. And Arthur Miller was the one in the middle. And I've just been asked by, uh, when I was just in London, by a director in London if I'd want to do Willie Loman in London. Oh. And that's been a dream of mine. You're going to do it, I hope. So I hopefully if he can get it produced, yeah. Yeah. I did not see the Brian Dennehy one. I saw the uh, well, he Phil was Hoffman one. Um, was, oh, you saw the no, Philip Hoffman Phil, Philip Seymour yeah. Hoffman. Um, I was going to see that and I, and I didn't make it out there. Yeah. It was pretty amazing. I can't remember what year that was. Yeah, that was uh, a while ago when both Philip and obviously Mike Nichols were still around. And I talked to Mike Nichols about that and sent him an email saying, it's killing me that you're doing Salesman without me. (laughs) And he sent me uh, an email saying, you know, in the old days, we would have opened Salesman in New York and opened it in London at the same time. And uh, Lee J. Cobb did it in New York and so-and-so did it in London. You would have been my so-and-so. You would have opened in yeah, London. Yeah. Um, uh, Mike. Well, that'd be great. Great if you get to do it uh, now in London. What a role. Um, I mean, you've kind of, it's funny. I, I you know, came in with a lot of uh, curiosity and you, you've kind of covered them without, without us really, um, me even having to ask them. Uh, what about uh, ballers, actually? That's a, a question. Do you, is it more improvisational on, on ballers or is it? We get to, we get to play. Yeah. Yeah. We get to play. And, uh, Steve Levinson, who was, um, who was my manager, uh, I'm still with his company, um, which could explain why I'm on the show. Um, uh, uh, is actually, and, and whoever's directing, they're actually really good at redirecting you to fulfill what they need. And still letting you do whatever you want. Yeah. It's a great combination. Yeah. So uh, uh, I get to play and uh, Rob Cordry, of course, uh, lives on an improv surfing wave. Yeah. And, uh, and, and Dwayne uh, Johnson is, is great at it too. Yeah. 
And since then, in year three, we had Steve Weber come on, and of course, he's a, he's a hysterical, and uh, we we just go off on our on our contest to see who can insult each other <laughs> with uh, uh, the most cutting remarks, and. Um, yeah, I have a blast on ballers. Yeah, you said that you, we had spoken about it, and you said you were having a lot of fun. And um, I told you my wife's been watching that show, and I've seen little snippets, and I, I've seen uh, some of your work on it. And I, that's what I thought was it looks like these guys are are having fun. Yeah. Um, and uh, and you said working with Dwayne is he's it's amazing to me. I I don't know all of his work, but I've seen some of his things. I just saw something with the kids, Jumanji. He's so likable. And, um, and, uh, he, it's amazing. And I I think you said something that was very, it was nice to hear that it it was in line with how I have seen him just in social media. He's, he's kind of like a, a studio unto himself. It seems like he could just open a movie. I don't know what he's got, like a, you know, 90 million you know, Instagram followers or something like that. But he seems like he's got a, a kind heart and he is, he's putting his celebrity to good use, it seems. No yeah. doubt. And yeah. all of that's true. He's a, uh, he's a really lovely man. Yeah. And, um, and curious. He asks questions. He wants to learn. Um, uh, he's got goodness written all over him. Uh, he's, you know, you see some of those movies where he did with Kevin Hart, which I saw on a plane. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. And and uh, you know, uh, another one that Seth Gordon, who directed uh, the good, who directs the Good Doctor, sometimes. Um, uh, what was that uh, Hasselhoff TV show? Oh, oh, Night Rider. No, no, oh, no. oh, oh, the Baywatch. Beach. Baywatch. I did not see that and one. He did the movie it? of Baywatch, yeah, yeah. and I just happened to see that on a plane. It was the yeah. only time I got to see stuff. And um, and I enjoyed that. It was you know critically yeah. banned, uh, not banned, but uh, uh, what do you call that? Panned. Or, panned. Yeah. And um, uh, and I thought it was funny. And uh, uh, what's his name from High School Musical? Oh right, uh, Zach. Uh, Zach Efron. Efron. Z- uh, he was funny, and and the women were funny, and um, uh, you know I just think. He's so watchable that whatever he does uh, is you're going to want to watch. And, yeah. and and he is a studio unto himself, no yeah. doubt. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. And I, I watched Jumanji. It was on, on demand recently with the kids. And uh, and that that's what we both said. My wife and I both said he's he really is he's just so likable. Uh, so it was just nice to hear because sometimes you you someone can have that persona publicly and I've never yeah. worked with him. And, and it's great. nice to hear that. He's great. And, you yeah. know, his schedule, he wakes up at 4.30 in the morning. He works an out animal, for two man. and a half hours. Holy he does God. three hours of business. He comes to set. Usually we've already blocked. And then he steps right in and then we shoot. And, um, uh, uh, you know, he's just a machine. And he's driven, you know, beyond anything I've ever seen. But without the intensity of it negatively affecting anyone else. Yeah. His assistants love him, you can tell. Um, uh, you know, his family loves him as you can, t- as, you, as his parent, you know, uh, he's just polite and, yeah. and he uh, seems grateful. That That's what grateful, it's, he seems yeah. grateful and he doesn't seem to be, he, he seems that, um, to not look 
down on anything. He kind of just says, okay, we're going to take it for what it is. We're going to make it the best that it can be, whatever it might be that he's working in. And he's kind of, to see somebody rise in all of these different, you know, as a, as a football player, as a wrestler, as an actor. It's, it's, uh, yeah, well, you know, his wrestling career, which I, I didn't follow, I don't follow wrestling, but, you know, clearly he was a performer yeah. and created a persona. And, you know, and he brings that desire to perform and have and, and to have fun onto onto everything he does. Yeah. Into everything he does. Yeah. Well, on the flip side, um, are there any qualities? I mean, I can guess just from, you know, things that you've said here, but qualities uh, that you kind of despise in working with someone. Are there, um, you know, are there people that you, you steer clear of because you go, I just don't want to, without naming names, but just, just uh, in terms of traits, um, um, I despise, uh, no, I don't despise anyone nowadays. I used to be very careful of actors that mess with you on the set. And some of them do it to, to mess with you. And some of them do it because that's their way of having fun. Um, to try to manipulate and, and play mind games. They just mess with you. They just, yeah. they just yeah. mess with your concentration. They just, yeah. they'll think that they have the right to make fun of stuff you're doing or that you're, you're kind of serious and that doesn't happen anymore i think uh now that people know me they they there's a respect that happens now um uh that uh so that they don't go there but as when you're an unknown um and maybe they're they're a little uh, uh challenged by you or uh the, the things that that make me crazy are uh Focus stealing type stuff, you know. Uh, there, this one actor I worked with who, whenever we got into a 50 50, uh, which is for those that don't know, the camera, you know, you're kind of profile to each other, right. and the camera is in the middle, uh, pointing at the two of you, and yeah. you're both supposed to be equally, Equal, yeah, equally profile, <laughs> and box you out. This or... <laughs> one actor would turn it into a 60 40 and then a 70 30. <laughs> And the next thing you know, it's an eighty twenty. And uh, <laughs> next thing you know, you're in the other room. <laughs> and one time, uh, to send him a message, I uh, completely turned and uh, finished the scene, and cut, you know, print, uh, check the gate, and he said, uh, uh, "So we're done." And the and I, I didn't even talk to the director. I just knew he'd have to do this. And he said, "No, no, no. We got to turn around." So he had turned his eighty twenty into a over over, <laughs> and I remember seeing his face going, "Oh, oh, oh, that's not what I wanted." And um, uh, and and I've done that on stage. Did he ever do it again? That guy? Did he? Oh yeah. Yeah. And then um, uh, I did that on stage a couple of times, where when somebody moves up stage to have a moment, um, I've literally turned my back to the audience and stood in front of them. <laughs> uh, and that look of panic in their eyes, like, what the hell are you doing? Uh, and I just don't care at that point. It's like, don't take me out of the play yeah. by pulling tricks like that. I, I don't like it. Yeah. You know, uh, that kind of stuff makes me crazy. Um, um, you know, I have no problem giving my back to the audience, but it it, it should it should happen for a reason, not for, for that reason, and not for, for a good reason. Yeah. Because when somebody's inching upstage, uh, I notice it, and so do 
and subliminally, if not consciously, so does everybody in the audience. And, um, uh, you know, I, I, I want my trance to continue on stage as well as their trance to, to yeah. continue off stage uh, in the audience. Actually, one question that I have that we didn't get to is you directed, so you talked about directing a lot of theater. Um, I know you directed two episodes of West Wing, you directed an episode of In Treatment. Do you have desire, a desire to direct a, a, a film that you said you wrote earlier on in your career, you're still writing? Is, is there, you seem, I would imagine that would be something that is a strong suit for you, writer, director, and yet, I don't know if that's in the plans. Well, I, I have to respect my brain, and my brain can only handle certain things I've discovered. You know, uh, I I can get overwhelmed. I have to protect the person that I came from. You know, uh, uh, and um, uh, there are aspects of directing television that, that I think that I can be good at, and particularly working with actors. But uh, the panic of um, time, because uh, in theater I, I, I had time, you know, and to develop, to see what I had. Um, and because we were working on such a low scale in terms of budget, I didn't have to commit to uh, other aspects of the design so early. Um, I could see what I had first and then... You know, we had, I always have an idea of the set, but then we could alter things yeah. on the set based on what we came up with. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, you can't do that in professional, you can't do that on Broadway. You got to have the set six months before you start right. rehearsals. You know, it's got to be built. You got designers, costumes, all of those things, all that prep. And um, I'm a, I think I work from feel a lot. And um, I'm sure I could do it, but... Uh, um, it's not something that I, I, I also find that, that, um, directing other people's television shows is oftentimes you're a traffic cop. Yeah. And being well, that's a, what I was wondering with you is almost more of like a indie film that you've written and directed yeah. or, or like a Mike Lee kind of experience where you cast actors and let, and you workshop it and kind of develop it over a year or two. And then yeah, that's very possible. That seems like it's up more up your alley the way it sounds like the way you work or what you kind of like to do. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah, that, that's, that's certainly possible. Um, the, the acting uh, side of things has gotten so busy right now. Uh, and I do write, I've written articles and, and essays and stuff and I write for myself, uh, um, short stories and stuff um, that I've told should be published, but I, I just, uh, I, I don't write it for that reason for You're writing reason. them for yourself yeah. well I show it I show it I have a muse and I show it to people that that uh, you know and uh, I'm kind of satisfied if if a couple of people love it yeah you know what I mean yeah. um, I, I t took a few writing workshops with this one one person who was great um, and then you read it in class and, and, and it gives me a feeling of satisfaction yeah uh, and he would say, you should send this to the New Yorker. And I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't want to be rejected in a whole nother field. Um, <laughs> I just keep it to myself. Uh, but yeah, maybe one day I'll compile them into a book of some sort. Yeah. Um, uh, and I have another idea for, for a book actually. Um, but I, I, I have to honor my brain and my brain is, is a little frazzled 
you know, and yeah, I, you're working a lot right now, but here. it's also the, it's the way it works. Yeah. You know, it, it's, uh, it can focus for short amounts of time. Um, uh, you know, I can ruminate, I can prepare, I can, and then I can have spurts, uh, you know, um, uh, in film, it's great in TV because, you know, you, you, you're concentrated, uh, uh, and then you get a break. And then, yeah. you know, as a director, you're... You're on all the time. Your brain is working yeah. um, 14 hours a day, and then you got to prep. Uh, it's something I should do, considering the way I think about things and the way I look about things. Yeah. Look at things. So we'll see. Uh, the one, I guess the one last question, because we should wrap it up, is... Um, I, after West Wing, I never got to work with you on West Wing, but then we worked together on that short web series before web series were cool, before yeah. they were a thing. And I remember thinking, man, this is Richard Schiff, who is, you know, won an Emmy, you know, just, just you're, you're at the pinnacle, um, whether you realize it or not. And then I thought, here he is doing something for the love of the game. And I loved it. It made me kind of just respect you and look up to you and, and go, that's, for me, I thought that that's pretty cool. So if there are people out there listening, there's, you know, young writer, directors, what is it that, um, are you open to working with new voices? And if you, and if you are, what is it that they would have to do to kind of they they're offering you a role. What it, I would imagine it's going to take a lot because you have so many options. But what would they, you know, what are the kinds of things, or are you even still open to working with someone who just because the material grabs you? Well, I've, I've done I've, I will have done that twice during this uh, hiatus from the Good Doctor. So I, I did a movie uh, called Clemency about the death penalty. I went in for that. That's you funny. did? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, with Alfrey Woodard. Well, you read the script. It's a great yeah, script. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know them. I, I, Bronwyn Cornelius, who's producing it, is a very reputable producer, but I had to find that out. I didn't know that. Um, that helped with the decision to do it. But, you know, they already had Alfrey Woodard and spoke to the writer and she said she wrote the role for me. I was like, why didn't you tell me this like four months ago? <laughs> so I, could, so I could make sure the dates were clear and blah, yeah. blah, blah. Um, and another one by, uh, written and directed gonna be, that I'm doing in New York coming up called uh, Safe Places, Dan Schechter, who I didn't know, um, but I loved his script. I, I don't even love the role. I, I love the script. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. You love the script. So you just want to be, you're willing to be a part of something that you could champion because it's... Well, they're both, they're both very important scripts in a lot of ways. Uh, obviously, this movie about the death penalty is poignant and beautifully sculpted. Um, the other one is about a, a subject which, uh, you know, uh, having to do with the Me Too movement and about men and how they are, um, how they fit into all this. Um and a dysfunctional but really funny family in you know in New York. Uh, there are many elements. Uh, uh, a son trying to pull his family back together. There, there are many elements of this script that was really appealing to me. And 
we've since, you know, talked to the, I've talked to the writer and the role is changing a little bit um, for the better. Uh, uh, but I, but I've done this before where I, I, I feel good being a part of a story that should be told, even if my role isn't, you know, ideal or great. And, uh, you know, my, my, I remember my agent, my manager having a conversation about these two films. Well, you, yeah, I understand you want to do clemency, but we don't really have to do the other one. And I go, no, 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 I want to do the other one. He goes, yeah, I'm a little concerned about the role. I got, I want to do the other one. I want to do it. Um, uh, because it's a movie that should be told and uh, should be should be done. And, uh, you know, who knows if my presence helps the, helps it get seen in any way. I, I, I honestly don't think it has that much of an effect, but I like to contribute and be a part of, of, uh, of, of those stories that, I think are compelling for whatever reason. Yeah, that's really, it's inspiring um, to hear that. And uh, and on the same, uh, at the same time, thank you for, for sitting down with me here and, and sharing your stories with me here. It's my pleasure. Yeah. I, I thoroughly enjoyed working with you when we worked together. Well, thank you. And uh, you're a good man and a talent, so. Uh, Thanks, man. I appreciate you should, that. Uh, you should soon get to do those things that you dream about. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Okay, guys, this was a long one, so I'll keep this brief. Uh, Thanks for sticking around. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you did, always appreciate you spreading the word to family and friends. Um, You can... Subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. You can go to 10,000nos.com. That's 10000nos.com and get these episodes with show notes and uh, really appreciate it. Episodes come out every Friday. Hope to see you next week. Thanks so much. Thanks.